I do want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're turning there, I'll share with you the title of my message of God Loves Impossibilities. And I want to ask you, have you ever, have you ever said, or maybe you've ever, have you ever heard someone say, that's impossible? Maybe you've said something yourself where, you know, you see that, see that mountain over there? To climb that, that's just simply impossible. Or, see that job there? That's impossible. Or, see that thing over there? It would be impossible to change that or to work on that or to do that. You know, there's some articles I was looking up this week that deals with impossibilities. And I think it was, it was Thomas Edison who said that the only difference between the difficult and the impossible is that the impossible takes a little longer. Also, back in 1943, a man said this. He says, I think there may be a world market for maybe five computers. It will be impossible to make any money from this. That was Thomas Watson. He was the chairman of IBM. And I'm glad you didn't listen to him back then. And then I read an article that said, there was once a sign, and some of you may have seen this, there was once a sign in a General Motors plant that read, according to the theory of aerodynamics, and as can readily be proven by wind tunnel experiments, the bumblebee is unable to fly. This is because the size of its wings in relation to the size of its body makes flying impossible. But the bumblebee, being unacquainted with these scientific truth, goes ahead and flies anyways and gathers a little honey every day. That's what I want to share with you about this morning, that God loves impossibilities. You know, an impossible situation has no visible solutions. It, just, it doesn't look like there's any, any good end in sight. It's like a dead-end street or like a dead-end job or a dead-end relationship that you may be in. There's no way around it. There's no way over it. There's no way through it. The end is inevitable, and it seems like it's impossible to change that. But you know, whenever we view a problem as impossible what we're actually doing is, is falling into a subtle trap, a trap that, that focuses on the externals, focuses on the things that only we can see. And I think this text tells us how, often, uh, how we often view things, I should say, before we, uh, before we know what's going on. So before we read this, though, I want to give you a little background here in Second Corinthians. This is an account of the Apostle Paul. He is in defense of himself and his authority as an apostle. And uh, the Jewish leaders, they were attacking him for his writings, and they were attacking him for his style, and they were attacking him for, uh, for, the, for the man he claimed to be, the things he claimed to say. And he would do, if, if, if he was really the, the apostle that he said he was, he would do such and such, and he would say such and such, or say this and that, and it just go on and on and on. They were struggling with that. And so his, in, in, in Paul's defense, in his own defense, he put his finger on the problem. We find that right here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to look at just one verse and we're going to go to another verse or another passage after this. But I want you to look at it because Paul puts his finger right on the problem that they're having with him being an apostle. In verse, or chapter 10 and verse 7, look what the Bible says. Paul says, look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, he is so also are we. Now, the phrase I want you to look at here is look, when he says, look at what is before your eyes. This, this verse 7, this very first part of verse 7 is better translated in the New King James as, do you look at things according to the outward appearance? 
That's what the New King James says. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? The NIV says, you are judging by appearances. And that's what Paul is saying here. Now, you are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself. And he goes on to, to finish that verse. The New American Standard Bible, I think, puts it the best. He says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. You're looking at things as they are outwardly. And I think that's the trap many of us fall into when we face something that we believe is an impossible situation. Listen closely. If there's one statement that describes how most of us live, how most of us view conflicts, or how how most of us handle life, it's right here in verse 7. Right here at the very beginning of verse 7. We view things externally. We see them through physical situations. We study them through physical logic. And we deal with them accordingly. Most of the time, only to fail. Not drawing at all on the power of God. Not trusting at all in the work of the Holy Spirit. We go by what we know. We go by what we see. That's the logical thing to do. Correct? Go like this, because you know it's a trap I'm sending for you, right? So when you go like this... That's a logical thing to do because that's what we know. That's what we're comfortable with. We simply view things outwardly. We judge by appearances only or by what we think we know. This is why they were struggling. This is why they were struggling with Paul as an apostle. He didn't have the background of an apostle. He didn't go to the apostle schools. There wasn't any then, but you know what I mean. He didn't do those things. He... He was, a, he was a Christian hater at one time. He was committed, he has committed some, some terrible, awful acts against the church. He was an ex-Pharisee. And these and other things is all they could see. Because listen, it was, it was all that they knew for sure about this man. And that's probably what many of us would think. I've heard of this Apostle Paul. Listen, oh yeah, he may have become a Christian. He, that, that, praise God for that. Amen. He, he came to know Jesus as his Savior. But certainly couldn't be an apostle. That would be impossible. Because you know what this man was. This I know. He hated the church. He hated Christians. He was a Pharisee. That much I do know about this man. If you go up to verse 3 and 4 in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, look what the Bible says here. Look what Paul says. He says in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons are of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 3 and 4 tells us here, As long as we are on this earth, we walk in the flesh, that is, we live in our physical bodies, This is the way we're going to live our life. But our battles are not in the realm of the flesh. Paul knew this. They're not in the realm of the flesh. We do not wage war as the world does. Our weapons are not weapons of the world. Our weapons are invisible to us. They are spiritual weapons. And these battles are going on all the time around us. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 365 days a year, they never stop these spiritual battles. 
If you understand that, you truly believe that. Let me ask you a question. Maybe this morning you're chained to us in a, in a certain situation. Maybe you're chained to a certain circumstance and you feel unable to get out of it. People just don't understand it. People just don't understand the way you feel. They don't understand why you just can't do this or can't do that. They won't make any attempt to help. They won't make any attempt to, to, to help you change it. They just don't care. And you can see what's coming and you can't stop it. You've seen stuff like this before and you know it's not good. You know the outcome is not good. Folks, listen. None of this and none of these things are beyond the power of God. Amen? No matter what you're going through, God's not limited like we are. He never faces dead ends. He doesn't even know what one looks like. You see, God provides weapons for us to use in our impossibilities. They're spiritual weapons. They're not worldly weapons. In fact, let's take a look at this. Go over with me to Acts chapter 12. We're going to spend the rest of the time there in Acts chapter 12, a very familiar story in the Bible. And we're going to, this is a good example of how God loves impossibilities and his weapons that he uses for action during this time. Now, I have to tell you up front, you have to get with me in this story. So, so don't just look at me. Get into the story because if you don't get into the story, you're not going to understand totally of what is taking place here and just how impossible the situation was. So in Acts chapter 12, let's look in verse 1. We're going to read the first 11 verses. It says, About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, And a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and all that the Jewish people were expecting. Folks, this is a good story. This is a good true story. Here are the Christians of first century, uh, 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 of the first century in, in Palestine. They jumped from the frying pan into the fire. I mean, things were, things were tough about eight years before this, as we read in the first two verses, when Stephen was stoned to death, but, but now they're almost impossible. There was a long line of persecution that was taking place. There was a long 
period of difficulty and a long period of misery that had settled in on the Jerusalem church. They weren't gathering like we are today with no worries outside the walls of this church. It was a hard, hard time. There was no end in sight. Didn't look like it was going to stop anytime soon. And I want you to notice what Luke writes here in verse 1. He says here in, 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 in verse 1, he says, About that time. Do you ever wonder what time he's talking about here? About what time? What time is he talking about? Sometimes you have to stop and look at these things because many people just skip right over that. And I think this will help us get a feel for what the people were going through at this time. About that time. Understand this is a time, the time they're talking about was a, was a time of great persecution. And so you have to keep that in mind. Today, we're, we're not much different today. This is the time we live in, correct? Go like this, because it's true. You live in this time, okay? This is, you live in 2018. Most of you have lived in 2017. Some of you will live in 2019, okay? Most of us have lived the last 40, 50 years. But if we go back 200 years, that was not your time. That makes sense? And so we could say, you know, 200 years ago, we could write a story and say, about that time. And we'd have to say, well, what time is he talking about? What was taking place 200 years ago? What was the world like? What was our culture like? What were the, the issues of the day? What were the concerns of the day? That's why this is important. About that time. What time? The time of great persecution. For the church. That's what Paul's writing about here. A time when, when, when things were, were terrible, they were, they were miserable, they were difficult for Christians back in that time. And we have to keep that in mind as we read this story. So about that time, that's, what, that's exactly what he is talking about, a time of great persecution. And this brings us to a man that's mentioned here in verse 1. Behind all these threats and behind all this torture and behind all this misery was, was, was one man. It was king of the Jews. It was Herod. Now, let me ask you, have you ever wondered which Herod this was? Because there were a number of them. It wasn't just one Herod. We hear about him in Christ's birth. We hear about him in Christ's death. So which Herod was this? Well, understand this. Herod was, was kind of like a, a surname, so to speak, like a Caesar or, or a president or a general. So it was like a, a title, so to speak. In the world of first century Palestine... Let's just go back a little bit. Understand, if you want to understand the time, it was a Roman world. The world was ruled by Rome. And even though the Jews had their own government, which we'll talk about in a second, they were really under the authority of Rome. And the Roman Empire was ruled by one man. Anybody want to guess? Caesar. It was ruled, it was ruled by Caesar. Now, there were a number of Caesars as well that ruled the world. Caesar Augustus, we've all heard of him, right? He ruled during the time of Christ's birth. And then there's Tiberius Caesar. He ruled uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry here on earth and during Christ's death. And then there's Caesar Caligula. And he's not mentioned in Scripture anywhere, but he came right after Tiberius Caesar. Then there's Claudius Caesar. And he's the one that's ruling the world, the Roman world, which, Jewish, which the nation of, of Israel was part of at that time. He was ruling the world during chapter 12 in Peter's ministry here. And so the Caesars were the Rome's Roman kings. And these were the ones the Herods answered to. So keep that in mind. Now the Jews were governed by a group of men, as we already mentioned, called Herods. They were nothing more than puppet kings. They thought they were something. 
but they weren't really much of anything at all. They had a lot of authority for the Jewish people. The first one was Herod the Great. We all know about him during Christ's birth. Then his grandson was Herod Agrippa I. And he is the ruler at this time in Acts chapter 12. He's the Herod that, is taking, that, that rules at this time. Then his son Agrippa II is the one Paul, if you, if you remember later on in Scripture, witnessed to when he says that you almost persuaded me to be a Christian. That's his grandson. So most of these men were terrible men. They were tyrants. They were cruel. They were jealous. They were petty. They were just plain nasty men that ruled the Jewish people. They were always trying to ride the fence. This is important to know. They were always trying to ride the fence between the Roman world because they had to keep Caesar happy and they had to keep peace there in in, uh, Jerusalem. They had to keep peace in the land and ride the fence between the, uh, the Roman world and the Jewish world. These Jewish leaders. You upset the Jewish leaders, then you have an uprising, and then you have, then you have problems, and then Rome doesn't like it when there's any problems, and then they send their soldiers in, and it's just a big mess. So these, these Herods would try to keep one foot in Rome and one foot in Jerusalem. And please everybody. Now here in this passage, to elevate his standing, if you will, with the Jewish leaders, he's been tormenting the believers of the church. That made those Jewish leaders happy. They, he, that, that kept them pumped up, kept them on his side. Even to the point of murdering one of the apostles here in verse 2. He says he, he, he killed James, the son of John, or the brother of John with the sword. He doesn't stop there. In verse 3, look what he says. It says he arrested Peter as well. You see, don't forget this. He was a man pleaser. And he, if he thought, man, I can arrest Peter, I've done something really great. Now, I want you to remember what we just said in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. When we look at, the, at life from the outward perspective, what happens? It breeds panic. It breeds unrest. It breeds uncertainty. And it breeds doubt. And the list could go on and on and on. And so here's... Here's Herod. He's, had, he's, he's killed one of the apostles. He's arrested Peter in, in, here in Acts. And, and, and things were looking even worse than before for the, for the church in Jerusalem. The Jewish church, they knew about these things. They knew the death of James. Of course, they knew about Stephen. And, and now they were faced with the decision. The apostle Peter had been taken from them. Their leader, if you will. For Peter's friends, their situation looked impossible. I mean, their close friend, the leader of their assembly, he is now in prison, and they have a decision to make. What do we do? And folks, you guys read the story. And you know what we would say? Don't panic. God's got it under control, right? You guys don't even need to worry about it. God will take care of it. If you're saying that here this morning, you're not putting yourself in their shoes. They don't know the end of the story. This is what they do know. They know things do not look good. Now, if they looked at this from just the outward perspective, there's three things that they would see that happened. First of all, in verse 3 and 4, look what it says here in verse 3. And it says here that, uh, let me see, I lost my spot. There we go, verse 3. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, what pleased the Jews? To kill James, the apostle, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison. 
delivering him over to four squads. This is what they saw. That wasn't an, this, this, this was something that would just really upset you if you were part of the church in Jerusalem. What are we going to do? Our leader is gone. Being in prison wasn't new. He was in prison before Peter was. In fact, two other times in Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 5, you'll find him. This is the third time Peter's been in prison. But I want you to notice what is different. In verse, in verse 4, it says, or verse 3, it says, During the time of unleavened bread. Why is this so important? Why do you think, why do you think God added that in the scripture? You ever wondered that? During the time of unleavened bread. Because if you know the time, you'll understand this. If you understand the culture, you'll understand why this is important. It says, during the time of unleavened bread, Peter was next in line to be executed. But the execution would certainly have to wait because Jewish law, during the time of unleavened bread, which was a seven-day celebration, there were to be no trials and there were to be no executions. Okay? Understand that? And why why does that mean anything to Herod? Remember, he's trying to keep the Jewish leaders on his side. So he doesn't want to break that. He doesn't want to get them upset. So he's going to wait that time out. Think about this. This actually saved Peter's life. It actually saved his life because, because otherwise Herod would have, just, would have just killed him right off the bat. But he wanted to please these Jewish leaders. So that's the first thing that they saw. The second thing, if they just looked at the outward appearances would have been they delivered him to four squads of soldiers. Look at this in verse 4. And when they had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. To guard Peter. One squad of soldiers is is not that unusual to do. But four? Now, there were four men in a squad, so that you understand what this is. And this way they could watch Peter around the clock. You know, do their shifts. And that's what they wanted to do. This was the, he was absolutely surrounded. There were two, two uh, guards would be at the cell door, and two of the guards would be chained right to the prisoner, right to Peter. And they all took turns guarding this dangerous prisoner, Peter. You see, think about this. Herod wasn't taking any chances of Peter mysteriously escaping his grasp. He wasn't taking any chances. Of, perhaps, perhaps Herod may have heard how he was sprung from prison earlier, in the earlier chapters of Acts, in a mysterious way. He may have heard about that, and he didn't want that to happen to him, so he put four squads of soldiers on Peter. You know, from all outward appearances, it looked like Peter was doomed. It looked bad for Peter because murder was this man's style. I don't see how Peter could ever get out of that. There wasn't even a time there wasn't any guards with him. There wasn't a time he wasn't chained to some soldiers. Things looked bad. And this, folks, this is exactly what you and I would see. Forget you know the end of the story. This is exactly what you and I would see. In fact, you know what we'd be doing? We'd probably be saying, I wonder who could take Peter's place in the church. Because I'm thinking Peter's not going to get out of this. We need a leader. We need to see who can step it up when Peter's dead. There's a third thing they see. And that is the feast was about over. It was coming right down to the wire. Look with me in verse 6. It says, Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was kept in prison until the end of the unleavened bread, or the, 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 the celebration of unleavened bread. And that was just about over with. There were, think about this, there were no last minute appeals for Peter. 
No one could go to, to Herod and appeal. There were, you know, like we would think today, we'd make a movie out of it. There are no special ops or Navy SEALs, rescue forces coming to get Peter out of prison. That wasn't going to happen. There were no behind-the-scenes political maneuvering going on. If, if you give us Peter, we'll do this. If you give us Peter, we'll give you this or do that. None of that was taking place. This is what Peter's friends saw and what was happening on the outward appearance. And this is what most of us would see. This is what we would know. This is a view of things looked impossible for Peter. They looked impossible. But look what Peter was doing. Go down to verse 6 again. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, what was Peter doing? If you're following along, you'll see that. Peter was sleeping. He wasn't even sitting in the church service. Peter was sleeping. Think about that. He was, Peter, was, Peter was sleeping. Can you imagine sleeping when down the hall the executioner is sharpening his, his, his blade that's meant for you? Folks, Peter trusted God. Peter trusted God. He had been through so much with Jesus, and, and he was determined to glorify him in life and in death. And Peter was sleeping. But look back up in verse 5. I want, to, I want to read this to you. This is very important. In verse 5 it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. While he was in prison, prayer was being made fervently before God. Why do you think that was? And you're sitting here thinking, well, because they were hoping that Peter would get get free or, or that Herod would change his mind or something like that would happen. Folks, they were praying because it would take God's intervention. And that's what they were asking for. That's the very thing they were asking for. Remember, our weapons are not of the flesh. Remember that? They're not of the flesh, but they are spiritual weapons. Do you see the connection here? They were fighting a battle, not not with fleshly weapons, but with weapons, as the passage of Scripture says, divinely powerful for the destruction of strongholds, the Bible tells us. It was a dramatic clash, if you will, between two forces, between physical might and between the spiritual might. And, and which one would be the stronger? Would it be the dungeon and its guards, or would it be the prayers of the church? When we pray for someone, when we corporately gather together to, to pray for someone or something or some instance, do we really believe our prayers are stronger than the worldly weapons? You know, it causes us to ask, do you have something in your life that you think that maybe it's impossible to get through? Do you? Folks, if that's the case, understand this, God specializes in things that we think are impossible. He does the things others cannot do. But our tendency is to look at the outward and not see God work in a divinely powerful way. That's our tendency. Because of what we see and because of the facts we know. Well, what happens here? Now, here again. Go with me. You've got to imagine being there. The answer came that night. Well, it was quiet. Look at verse 7. And this, this, is, a, this is a good story. In verse 7 it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. And notice it doesn't say anything about going back. An angel of the Lord went to the church and said, 
your prayers are answered, I'm going to take care of this tonight. Doesn't say that, does it? Doesn't even tell us that. Doesn't even hint to that. It just goes right on to saying, Behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. Folks, an angel of the Lord suddenly appears. And I think this is so exciting. That's the way he operates sometimes. That's the way God operates sometimes. You go along on and on and on and on, and when it's absolutely panic city, bang, the Lord steps in. Amen? You think, man, this, this is, we're all done. It's finished. Then bam, the Lord does something. The Lord steps in. Now, Peter was sleeping so soundly, so soundly that the angel had to poke him in the ribs. Look what it says here. It says, And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in his cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him. Evidently, the light didn't wake him up. So he pokes Peter. Peter must have been, he was out. He was zonked. And, uh, and, and then the angel pokes him in the ribs. He says, no. Now, think about this. It says, the light shone in the cell. Why do, you think, why do you think that the angel needed a light in the cell? Did you ever think about this? Remember, you're putting yourself there. I believe it's because Peter had to be able to find his sandals and his stuff. It was dark in there. It also says that the chains fell off his hands. Did you ever wonder, like, did that make any noise or anything like that? I mean, picture yourself there. There's a light shining. Angels poking him in the ribs, waking him up. And, he, and what's the angel telling him in verse 7? He, the light shone itself, and he struck Peter in the side, and he woke him up and said, Get up quickly, and the chains fell off his hands. Then look at verse 8. The angel tells him, Put on your clothes, put on your sandals. In other words, get dressed, Peter. That's what he says. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so, and he, and he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you, and follow me. Now, if you put yourself in that position of thinking, i got to put my clothes on. Okay, where did this light come from? And how did these chains get off? And, okay, and who is this guy? I'm assuming it's a guy. Most angels are, right? Okay, who is this? And I shouldn't say most, all are that we know of. So, you know, you can't, you, you, you know they get, get your stuff on. You can't go in the street looking like that, Peter. you got to get your clothes on, get your cloak on, get your sandals on, gather up your things, and follow me. And no doubt Peter was trying to figure out what was going on and where he's at. You know how we know that? Because look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. He says, And he went out and he followed him. And then it says this, He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. How many here would be in Peter's shoes? I would wake up and say, You know, I had a dream last night that an angel came into my cell and the chains fell off. And this light shone, and he poked me in the ribs, and he told me to get dressed. I mean, that's what I would think. How many here have ever had a dream that seemed like it was real? Come on. It didn't have to be a good dream, just any dream, and it seemed like it was real. Well, that's what Peter thought. He thought he wasn't sure what was going on. He was trying to figure out what's going on and, and where he was at. He actually thought he was dreaming. Listen, on the floor with the chains... They were lying powerless next to the guards. In front of him was an angel telling him how to get dressed. And so he fumbled about, put his clothes on, and still, think about this, and still no one noticed him. Isn't that good? The, the, the guards didn't even do anything. Can you just imagine that in your head? And look at verse 10. And when they had passed the first and second guard... 
That would be strange enough right there, right? Okay, all this has happened, but how are we going to get out of it? There's four guards there. And when they passed them, as Peter and the angel calmly walked by the guards, they didn't even stir. They didn't even pay attention. I don't know if the guards were sleeping, if the angel knocked them out, if they were just invisible. The Bible doesn't say, but whatever it was, they didn't even stir. They didn't even do anything. Now watch this. Look at the rest of verse 10. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one of the streets, and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. Folks, without a sound, just like this, I want you to picture this in your mind. Without a sound, God opened the gate, and Peter was free. And just like that, just like that, God had done the impossible. Isn't that amazing? Just like that. And look what Peter says here in verse 11. Look what he says. He says, Now I am sure, before he thought he was dreaming, that now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod. And then look what he says. And from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Think about that. They certainly didn't expect this, did they? And they get up in the morning and they expect Peter to be in prison still, ready to be executed. They didn't expect that. Folks, isn't that a great story? Just like that, God had done the impossible because the church was earnestly praying for him. He used spiritual weapons, not worldly weapons. God can do that. You know, I think this, this story should encourage us because there's, when you think about it, there's not a lock that God can't pick. There's nothing He can't do. You may feel caged up in your past. You may be paralyzed by certain fears. You may feel defeated by your habits. But God is more powerful than all of these. Now, we know we've got to keep in mind God will never step outside of His will, but nothing is impossible for Him. Do you believe that? Nothing is impossible for him. And you'll probably never be in such a dramatic uh, scene as Peter was here in prison. But God still works the impossible in your life as well. On the outside, things may look impossible. It did for Peter. And just when you think you can't go absolutely any further, God intervenes with help and with comfort, and he works the impossible. Just remember this as we close. To God, nothing is impossible. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Lord, we are so thankful that you're not only the God of the impossible, but nothing is impossible for you. And Father, help us to not fall into the same trap that we tend to fall into time and time again by viewing things by the outward appearance, by just viewing things of, of, by, by what we know, Help us, Father, when we know that, that you can work all things. There is nothing beyond your, your power. There is nothing beyond your knowledge. And, Father, we want your will to be done in each and every one of our lives, but we also know that through that you can work the impossible. And we praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen.